0: The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org.
1: Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight, are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children, May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Good morning. morning.
0: After worshiping through the service guide this morning, uh, the title of the message, Wise Living in a Foolish Age, we could do pretty well just to sing these songs and have these prayers. And we have heard and sung and prayed what it means to live wisely in this foolish age. But I think we're supposed to stay a little bit longer. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 90. It's actually in the middle of your Bibles. It's easy to find the Psalms if you're ever confused. You just kind of open up your Bible to the middle and you'll get there. Psalm 90, which was read by our brother Peter. And when you've found that, uh, I'd like to pray briefly. Our great God and our Father, the everlasting and eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would find acceptance in your sight, O oh Lord. You alone are our strength, our dwelling place. And our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So I had a physics teacher in high school, and I don't remember much about physics besides E equals MC squared. I don't even know what that means. But as a 15, 16, 17 year old, that's who was in our class, we were pretty impressed when he said things like this Kids, life is hard. And the sooner you realize that, the easier it will be. That's an interesting narrative. There's something true about that probably. It's not the whole story, though. But There's something there. I'm certain some of you, maybe even many of you, don't need to be told that life is hard. It is hard for you every day. Daily there are challenges in our marriages, in our work. Perhaps we've lost loved ones. Perhaps we ourselves are dying and will be dying soon and have an illness that troubles us. The reality of life in a broken, fallen world kind of hits us every morning. And so for an agnostic, middle-aged man teaching a bunch of privileged high school kids to tell us life is hard, the sooner you realize that, the better. was interesting counsel, but not really the whole story. Fairly decent advice, but that life is hard is only part of the story, isn't it? Death and dying is also hard, not just life. And my physics teacher didn't know how to explain what to do when life is hard. All he said was, life is hard, realize that, and life will get easier. In our psalm today, Moses helps us understand how to respond when life is hard. This psalm is really a poem, and I want us to consider three sections of the poem this morning, Psalm 90. The first is Moses' reminder in verses 1 and 2, always start with God. In your worldview, in your praying, in your living, when you wake up in the morning, when you go to sleep at night, always start. With God. That's verses 1 and 2, Moses' reminder. And then in verses 3 through 11, let's look at Moses' reality check. Verses 3 through 11. And it does get heavy in those verses as Moses tells us what life is really like in this broken and fallen world. But then in verses 12 through 17, let's see what Moses' response is to this reality check. So Moses' reminder, in verses 1 and 2, always start with God. Moses' reality check in verses 3 through 11. And then finally, Moses' response and our response to this reality check in verses 12 through 17. But first, a a little bit about Psalms and in general this psalm. Psalms are sometimes called the Psalter, that's with a P, it's not that thing on the table, it's P-S-A-L-T-E-R, sometimes I'll say Psalter, I mean all these 150 books of the Psalms. They're organized into five different books, and if you have one of these Bibles, you can see that, Psalm 90 begins uh, Book 4, there are five books, some of you know there's five books in the Old Testament law, the Torah, and some people think that perhaps these five books are arranged uh, somewhat similarly. But the point is, there's there's not always a context between the psalms, but we can be helped when we look at which psalm came before and which came after. We don't always know the exact context in which a psalm is written, but it helps us to see where those who put the psalms in these five books place them, and we'll talk about where Psalm 90 fits in just a minute. This is a psalm of Moses. It's probably the oldest psalm in the Bible. Probably written a long, long time ago, maybe at the end of Moses' life. And you'll remember that Moses lived really three lives. His first one growing up, rescued, remember, in that basket of reeds, and then living with Pharaoh and getting taught all this wonderful worldly wisdom, which he then put into practice in the second part of his life when he tried to kill the Egyptian guy and set God's people free, being wise in his own eyes, and that earned him a 40-year trip to the desert where he tended sheep. So now he's 80, and in his third part of his life, then, of course, God uses him to deliver God's people. But even that was trying and challenging, and more than likely, Moses penned this psalm, which is a poetic song also, probably, at the end of that last section of his life when he had seen God's miraculous deliverance from Egypt. You'll remember that going through the Red Sea God's people uh, went through on dry ground, and then the waters came and just destroyed all of Pharaoh's folks. But then it was a, a long time of wandering in the wilderness because of the disobedience of God's people. It's likely, though we can't know for sure, that Moses wrote the psalm towards the end of that life. And he had seen tens of thousands of people die. And his sister had died. Some, all of them judged because of God's Anger at their sin, some dying from plagues, others uh, bitten by serpents. But nevertheless, Moses had lived among daily, weekly funerals, death and dying. He had seen it. He knew what life was like and that it was hard. One more thing about Psalms before we dive in here. Psalms are poetry, and those of us who read, or maybe there's some who write poetry, know that poetry is intended to evoke in us passion, emotions, feelings, and it's often the images that are strung together that help us experience or imagine what the poet is saying, and that's true in this psalm as well. And in Hebrew poetry, often there are two pieces or two parts to align. There's the first part, and the second part kind of expands upon that first part, or sometimes there's the first part, and the second part is, is exactly stating the same thing, just in different words. Let me show you that. It's not going to take a long time on it, but perhaps it's interesting to some of you. Synonymous parallelism, parallelism. In verse 16, just cast your eyes down there. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. See, it's saying something very similar. Basically the same thing, but perhaps even expanding upon it a little bit. Or in verse 11. If only we knew the power of your anger, that's the first part. The second, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Maybe developing, see, echoing that first line and then restating it with a little more uh, intensity in the second part. Or verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, expanding for as many years as we have seen trouble. So it's poetic language, it's helpful to see that as we read through the book, It's uh, read through this psalm. Poetry gives us not so much the rhetoric of, uh, say, a letter of Paul's, or even a narrative story, but often a logic of images, and I think we'll see that. So I invite you as we look at this psalm to think about how the psalmist felt, because this psalm, like all poetry, addresses not just our minds, but our, our emotions as well. So, the structure, real quickly, begins and ends on a very hopeful note. But the middle of this, the reality check, acknowledges the tragic consequences of living as sinful people in a world distorted by sin and in a creation that is subject to frustration. I titled the message, Live Wisely in a Foolish Age. I'm not going to spend a long time on this because you're very much aware of it yourself. But we do live in a foolish age perhaps no more foolish than any others. And the foolishness of the age is trying to understand life apart from God, Uh, trying to avoid death through some strange technology. A friend of mine, whenever faced with a problem at work, says, there's got to be an app for that. There's no app for this. More on apps in a minute. First, Moses' reminder, always start with God, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And there's a key there to how we should understand this. Moses is a man of God. This prayer should be our prayer. He's an example for us. And he starts with God, our Creator. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations, before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. We are not. Moses is not. There is one God who has existed from all eternity who is the dwelling place of God's people. Literally that last line from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, is something like this. From like before forever in the past and then beyond forever in the future, that's who our God is. From everlasting, like before, forever in the past. To everlasting, beyond forever in the future. If that boggles your mind, it should. (laughs) And yet this same God, Moses says, has been their dwelling place. You know, a a place of refuge, their home, the place of protection, where there's safety and security. You know, I was traveling last week, and it was an interesting flight. reminded me that life can be hard. Uh, Any of you who travel know that. And how great it is to finally get home. Moses and his people were traveling, wandering through the desert for 40 years, and yet he can say, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. You are our refuge. In you we find protection, safety, security, comfort. And even before the world was made, was our God. So Moses leads the people in this prayer, and he always starts with God. And I want to say, whatever story it is, that you're trying to use to explain the world, if it doesn't start with God, it's not the real story. I'm not sure what it is, but it's not the real story. The real story of our existence always starts with God, as Moses, the man of God, reminds us. Now Moses is going to be honest about our human experience. And so after describing the creation from nothing by the eternal everlasting God, he goes on in these next few verses to meditate in God's presence. I want us to see that musing, if you will, meditating upon reality, Moses' reality, which is also ours, though a little bit different for us in some ways. So in verses 3 through 11, let's look at Moses' reality check. In this life, we're all passing through. There's toil and trouble because of sin. Verse 3, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals, the language of Genesis 3. I'm pretty sure Moses is reflecting upon the first 11 chapters of Genesis. After all, he wrote them. (laughs) And he's thinking back to that time when the curse was uttered by our great creator God, saying to Adam, you'll go back to the dust. From dust you were made to dust you will return. Moses understands that. The ESV says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of Adam. All of us are sons and daughters of our parents, Adam and Eve, and we all live under that curse, and we all have inherited the corruption of sin, and as soon as we're old enough, we actually engage in sin. Does Moses mean all that? I'm not sure, but he does use that word Adam, which reminds us New Testament Christians that the first Adam got us into a lot of trouble but it's trouble that we ourselves gladly participate in as soon as we're able, until we're set free by the second Adam. So people die. That's what he's saying in verse 3. We return to dust. And even if Scripture didn't tell us this, we would know that it's true. The most famous people in the world, the emperors who wanted to be worshipped as God, where are they? They've returned to dust. And apparently, even those Egyptian mummies, when they're exposed to human breath and air and the elements, what happens to them? They return to dust. So Moses' reality check reminds us that we will return to dust as well. All of us will die. Nature wreaks havoc on humanity now. It's not as things were in Eden, and things now are not as they will be in the new heavens and earth. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night, he says in verse 4. I'm talking about how God's perspective on time is very different from ours. Remember, Moses wandering 40 years. There have been promises made. You're going to be delivered. You're going to go into the land of Canaan. But because of people's sin, they didn't get there. They wandered for a long time. And yet he says in God's presence... To his creator, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. And then he says, even better, it's only four hours. That's what a watch in the night is like. A thousand years to us, four hours to our God. Now, I've thought a lot about time this week. How we experience time is very different, isn't it? And so God according to this psalm, experiences time very differently from us. As was prayed earlier, he's never in a rush and he's never too slow. With him, a day is like a thousand years or even a watch in the night. Now, if it's hard for you to understand this, maybe this will help. You know there's times when two people experience the exact same thing and yet their experience of time is very different, right? You think of things like that? I hope the baits aren't here today because of the example I'm about to use. When I sit in the dentist chair, an hour is like a thousand years. I'm still looking for a pediatric dentist that will take me. But for the dentist, that hour is like a second. They're in the flow, they're really enjoying all of that. I'm not saying God's experience is like that but we can understand a little bit same event but we experience time differently from where God is everything is always right on schedule and a day with him a day with a day with him uh, Peter goes on to say a day is like a thousand with the lord and a thousand is like a day to the lord he experiences things very differently from us another way to think about it is to think about time as kind of an accordion And especially when we read our Bibles, there are promises made even back in Genesis 3 and other places that kind of look forward into the future and and yet fold time in so that the prophets see that time as though it's kind of folding in like an accordion. Um, God sees things differently when it comes to time than we do. He goes on to say, you sweep people away as in a flood is what the ESV says, or maybe it's in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. There is a bit of a translation problem there. I don't think it matters a whole lot. But if Moses is writing about the flood, it makes sense that he's still reflecting on Genesis 1 through 11. Sin, the fall, things get really bad. And then actually everyone except Moses and his family is wiped out. He goes into the ark, a dwelling place that God's provided for him, and he's protected and kept safe. Then he comes out and life starts again. But if he's talking about the grass there, he's probably speaking of that grass in the desert, which in the morning because of the dew looks like it's going to make it, and then the hot sun comes, and then it's all withered away by the evening. And he's saying that's what our life is like. We're here today and gone tomorrow. In the morning we spring up new, but by evening we also are dry and withered. The reason for this, Moses says, is because of God's anger at sin. And again, this is not a story that you will hear uh, in our foolish age. And yet, Moses is quite clear, as is Paul. The rest of the Bible makes it very clear that the whole creation groans in frustration, that God subjected it to that because of his anger at all that is evil, including our sin. Moses says, speaking very particularly, of course, of Israel's disobedience, and says, we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. But, of course, we... Are not in the wilderness with Israel, and yet we also have sinned. And the New Testament tells us that God is um, that we are God's enemies because of our sin, and He is angry with our sin. The good news, of course, is that the New Testament also says, "If while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life?" But here it is. This is a bracing reality. It is a reality check. We go through life. It's easy to forget that God is angry with sin and sinners. And Moses puts it in very clear terms. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence This is another way the foolish age tries to do away with the concept of sin and God's anger with sin. Redefining sin, well, it's not really sin. Or if I do it in the dark, no one will see. Or I have a right to privacy as long as no one else is injured by my behavior. Certainly God's not angry with it. That's just not the real story. Moses wants us to understand the real story is, when it comes to sin, there's no right to privacy. None. And would Moses know this? He snuck away trying to kill that Egyptian in private, and he ends up spending 40 years uh, tending sheep because God saw, and God was angry, and God punished him. Now, the good news for us as we prayed in 2 in, uh, Peter, Peter this morning is that God is delaying his judgment now that Christ has come. And we don't live in, under the Sinai covenant as Moses and the people did. Under that particular arrangement, it was really clear do this and things will go well, do that and there will be judgment. And the judgment was often not delayed, it came fast, like that. That's what was happening in the wilderness. God's people sinned, the plagues come, and that's it. But that's not how we, the situation under which we live today. Now that Christ has come under the new covenant, God is patient with his judgment. There will be a day of judgment coming in the future, but for now, uh, he is patient, waiting to bring in more and more people from every tribe and tongue and nation to repent and bow the knee to Christ. So th- there's, this is a tough picture here. Um, we die, life is short, um, we're consumed by God's anger, we can't hide from his presence, all of our sins he sees, there's no escaping God's presence. And then, verse uh, 10, 9 and 10, all our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan or a sigh. Like, what's wrong with this guy, Moses? You know, does he need to see a doctor? Um, he sounds pretty discouraged. Is he in despair? Our days may come to 70 years, he says, or 80 if our strength endures, but the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Where to turn when the reality of life and death make us groan and sigh with sadness like Moses? Here's a guy in the third part of his life, probably approaching his death, who's seen a lot. He's lived reality, daily waking up and seeing yet another person or group of people or family dead as they wander through the wilderness, burying them, moving on. Sure, there was the manna, but there was also the death and dying. And our foolish age, we try to get away from these ideas of death and just let's don't talk about this stuff. It's not fun for me to stand up here and talk about this. But here it is in God's Word. We have to deal with what God's Word says. Our foolish age tries to deal with death and dying in ways like this. Does anybody have the Lives On app? Probably not because it's dead. But it's kind of interesting. It was in beta testing several years ago. Here's what it was for. It's amazing how foolish we can be. It was designed so that you could tweet from the grave after you die. You know, AI would pick up what you're tweeting now, and you pay some money, and um, the tagline is, when your heart stops beating, you'll keep tweeting. <laughs> I mean, is that, that's crazy. Yeah, it'll just like figure out what you would say if you were alive, and people can read your tweets even though you're dead. That's pretty foolish. Um, it's trendy, of course. Silly, if not foolish, but when I looked this week to see if lives on app was still out there, guess what? <laughs> it's dead. <laughs> it was in beta testing. I guess it didn't make it through to the 1.0 version. Crazy. Moses, the psalmist, wouldn't direct you to an app, technology, to yourself, to some false religion Moses would direct us to our great God and to his word. We sigh, we moan, the creation groans. Things don't work quite right in real life. Uh, Our lives can be awfully sad. They're definitely short. There's even frustration and failure in this life. But the real question for all of us is, so what do we do? How do we respond to the reality that is life is short, it's challenging, we're all going to die because of sin, and unless we're in Christ, we will experience God's anger against our sin. Moses tells us the right thing to do in verses 12 through 17. Moses' response to this reality check, and I want you to hear this clearly, his experience was not a walk in the park. Go through and read Exodus. This guy had seen a lot. He had experienced some difficulty. His life was hard, and he'd seen a lot of people die, including his sister had just recently died. But what does he do? He turns or returns to God. He started with God, as we always should, and then in verse 12 through 17, let's see his response. Teach us to number our days, he says, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now that word heart is interesting. It's really referring to kind of the nerve center, the control center of our human life. So it's not just our feelings or emotions and affections, though it is that. It's also our thoughts and our motivations. I think what he's saying is teach us the number of days so that we can be wise people in what we think and feel and what motivates us and what satisfies us. And I think that because of what he goes on to say, In the following verses, I'm not exactly sure what he means by teach us to number our days, other than remember that as soon as we're born, we will eventually die, that our lives are not forever, that we are frail, that we are mortal, and that we are finite. So remember that so that you can live your life wisely. Maybe he means what Paul says, make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil, redeem the time. Or maybe Paul's commenting on this verse. I'm sure Paul was familiar with Psalm 90, much more familiar than I am. (laughs) So teach us to number our days, is his response, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. He doesn't say, let me get away from this reality. Let me invent something else. Let me push God to the bottom and suppress the truth. Let me turn to myself or read some self-help book or get an app or work on technology. Life is hard. I can't deal with it. God cannot help me. On the contrary, what he does is he turns to God and says, Teach us, not just me, teach us, God's people, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It says, relent or return is what the ESV says in verse 13. Lord, how long will it be? Yeah, He's lamenting, isn't he? There are lots of psalms of lament. Things are not as they should be. He's honest about reality. He says, how long, O oh Lord? It's been 40 years in the wilderness. I am tired of this. It's hard. How long? Then he says, have compassion on your servants. Again, the Christian worldview, the real story in which we are all living, is not only that God is angry with sin, but as Moses wrote earlier, and as we prayed a few minutes ago, he is also slow to anger and abounding in love, full of compassion, unconditional love for his people. So which is it? Is God angry with sin or is he full of love and compassion? Is he just or is he infinitely loving? Yes, he is both in a way that we can't possibly understand. So Moses, recognizing that he lives under God's anger and all of God's people in that time were being judged, says, okay, what can I do but appeal to God's compassion and his steadfast covenant love, his faithfulness, the promises That he has made and so he prays satisfy us in the morning in verse 14 with your unfailing love your covenant love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days maybe that's a reference to that manna or quail that appeared every morning Jesus uh, would put it this way you know we don't live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God Is Moses saying, look, the the manna was pretty cool. We like that. But what we really need is your unfailing love. Make us glad, he says, for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. It's a wonderful response to what is a pretty challenging reality in which we ourselves often find that we are living. This is also our hope. We do know pain and suffer suffering, but we know that joy will come in the morning for the one who is in Christ looking to him. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. I know what Moses meant by that. We probably mean something a little different these days. I don't know if Moses could see as far as we can see. We can look back and see that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death. He rose a perfect resurrection in the morning. (laughs) He's called the bright morning star. Previously, Moses had said, you sweep men away as in the sleep of death. Well, sleep metaphorically being our death. Well, when do you wake up? Most of us who don't have a shift job, we wake up in the morning. So I think we'd be right as Christians to say satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love is not unlike saying, come Lord Jesus. Rescue us from this world. Take us into the new heavens and earth. Begin to rule and reign over your creation, which belongs to you. You alone can satisfy us. It is your unfailing love. And then we sing for joy. I don't know if you've noticed in the Bible, it's really interesting to me When God's people are saved and rescued, what do his people always do? They sing for joy. You'll see that pattern again and again. God comes in, he saves his people, and the response is, singing for joy. That's what we see in the New Testament. That's what we've done today, those of us who know Christ. We have sung for joy. And what do we see in Revelation? Singing for joy. Singing a new song. And so when confronted with hard realities... Moses helps us understand. We look to the Lord to satisfy us and we sing for joy and we can be glad all our days. And verse 15 and 16 are interesting. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. This may remind some of you of some verses that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4 where he says our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all those of you who are paying careful attention will notice that Moses simply says, okay, here's, um, yeah, our afflictions, we'll set the tear there, and then we'll put on the gladness you're going to give, and it'll still be zero. It's like balance, and that's pretty good. I mean, I settle for that. Paul does him so much better, right? He says, these, these light, he set the tear on the afflictions. Whoa, here comes the the glory. Here comes the gladness. Just totally outbalancing, outweighing the afflictions and the troubles. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us, as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown shown to your servants in verse 16. Literally your work, your splendor to your children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Those of you who have been attending the Gospel at Work Sunday School, uh, I've heard this already. But work is challenging, and it's frustrating, and things don't always go the way they should. It's a broken world. We're broken people. And yet Moses would have us commit our work to the Lord and turn to him and pray for him to establish the work of our hands. As we turn to God and trust of him, our work can be meaningful. But verse 16 says, May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. Moses is turning to God and saying, Do something extraordinary to rescue your people. I'm not sure Moses could see this far into the future, but as we look back and look into the future, we can understand where is it that God has most clearly shown his powerful work to his people in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Moses longed to see that day when our great Savior, the second person of the Trinity, would live that perfect life and through no fault of his own, absolutely innocent, would go to the cross. And die in the place of sinners and absorb the full wrath of God against our sin and all of God's people's sin from all times. And say on the cross about the work that he came to do, it is finished. I don't know how that encourages you, but it encourages me. Whatever work I'm doing, however frustrating it is, Jesus has already finished the most important work, which is to take the penalty for my sins and to give me new life and acceptance with God so that I can relate to him properly so that I can go to work and pray this may the favor of the Lord rest upon us establish the work of our hands for us yes establish the work of our hands This psalm is a a prayer a song of honesty it's realistic it's heavy in some ways but it's also very hopeful And that's how Christians should live, I think, as well. We are honest about reality, but we're hopeful people because of what Christ has done. In this fallen world, let's not forget that our God is from everlasting to everlasting. We must start with the Creator who made us. He is eternal. We look only to the Lord to satisfy us. We ask Him to establish The work of our hands. How appropriate was our preparation song this morning? Let me remind you of what we sang together. You are rich in love and slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness, I will keep on singing 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. That's living wisely in a foolish age. And in the Second Peter that we prayed over, what kind of people ought we to be in light of the fact that reality is hard and that the whole creation has been subject to frustration and that all people are under God's judgment, that we'll only find hope in Christ, that we will all die, that we should pray, Return, come, Lord Jesus. What kind of people ought we to be, Asked Peter. We ought to live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. We are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Moses and his people, though he wouldn't get to go in, they were just going into the land of Canaan, where things would still happen, people would still die, it would still be hard. Yes, it was the promised land. Yes, it was, a, it was part of God's purpose. But we look forward to a new heavens and a new earth or there will be no more sickness or sorrow or suffering or death or dying. And I like to think that every bit of our work will be productive. The batteries will never run out. The toner will always be in the copier or whatever it might be. We'll sing in just a few minutes what Matt has been showing us in Paul's letter to the Philippians. He will hold us fast. And if you hear what Moses is saying and think, it all depends on me. Let me just do my very best to to make life work. Then you haven't understood what Moses is saying. Our job, our role is simply to turn to God and trust and to seek him and to ask him to satisfy us, to cast ourselves upon his unfailing love. He will hold us fast. When reality hits us like a ton of bricks, When I fear that my faith may fail, Christ will hold me fast. When foolishness looks appealing, when the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold, for my love is often cold. He, he will hold me fast. Can you see that in a slightly different but nevertheless similar way? That's what Moses is asking us to do showing us turn to God when reality hits us hard. Psalm 90 is a real and honest prayer by a real man of God who knows that life is short and life is hard and death and dying are also hard, but he wisely turns in hope to God. There are plenty of unreal stories out there, narratives about why life is hard, how the universe came into being, how to make the best of life that is, as Thomas Hobbes said, largely true, nasty, brutish, and short. In which story are you living? When reality bruises and blisters our souls like the desert trekking, That must have blistered the feet of the wandering Israelites, newly freed from Egypt, yet dying off by the tens of thousands. Then is now there only two options. Turn to the one true God and trust, or turn away from him. To false gods and foolish idols, relying on yourself, thinking that somehow you can solve the problem of God's anger with your sin, thinking that perhaps you can hide your sins, though Moses makes it very clear. There, are no, there is no such thing as secret sin when it comes to God. It's an oxymoron. Or you turn to false religion. Somehow, Let maybe, yes, life is hard. Oh, sure, there's probably a problem with God, but I can fix it myself. That's what all false religions are about trying to fix a problem that only God can fix and that he has already fixed for those who will put their trust in Christ. That, my friends, forgive me for sounding disrespectful, is foolishness to say to God, look, what you did won't work for me. I got this. That wasn't really necessary. All that stuff with Moses and then David, prophets, virgin conception, the birth of Jesus, Like his temptation in the wilderness, going to the cross. I don't really need that. I've got this. That is the most foolish attitude you can imagine. And one day, if that's what you're believing, reality will hit you much harder than the reality we've just described here. So don't be foolish, be wise, turn to God. Christ has done everything necessary to bring you to God, to solve the problem of sin in your life. And he's gone to prepare a place for those who put their trust in him. He makes it not only possible, but he makes it certain for those who believe in him and turn from their sins and say, I cannot make life work apart from God which takes us back to that first verse are you trying to make life work apart from god that's not a wise way to live so psalm 90 starts with god and finishes with god it's hopeful it's honest and then it's hopeful again i kind of like that is that a, a an honest sandwich maybe hopeful honest hopeful that's not a bad way for us to live we do need to be honest but we can be hopeful on both sides of the honesty and the reality check. Remember that our God is eternal, that he's a reliable refuge, that he is a place of safety and protection. And as I think about our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this world, who lived among us, dwelt among us, experienced everything we experience except sin, and then died in our place and rose again, The Bible says that we actually, when we turn from sin and trust, we are in Christ. It's as though he has become our dwelling place to protect us from the wrath of God. Because he absorbed it in himself on the cross so that we would not. Not unlike the ark that maybe Moses had in mind. Don't walk out of here without asking someone about this Jesus Christ if you are not yet his follower. If you can't say with Moses, Oh, Lord, you've been my refuge through all generations. Any story that urges us to turn inward and find the resources to make life work in this broken world without God and Christ is ultimately foolish. You might read stories about trusting in self and money, false religion, maybe apps. I could have gone on about that, but this is only so much foolishness and turning away from the wisdom that God freely offers us in his word and most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. That same God, the only real God and creator, Moses God and our God, is abounding with steadfast love and compassionate forgiveness toward all those he enables to turn and trust in him. Without the Bible's understanding of reality, we won't live wisely in this sin-scarred and broken world. Turning away from God is never wise. It's always foolish. And so a word to those of us who are Christians. We maybe have made that decisive turn and put our faith and trust in Christ, but likely there are times when the reality of life, the shortness of life, the difficulty of work, work the challenges of broken people, challenging marriages, families, suffering, sadness, death, and dying. When that reality check hits us hard, where do we turn? Matt has urged us in his prayer this morning that we should gently admonish one another, and we should encourage each other regularly. The writer to the Hebrews says, encourage each other Every day, so that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And you know what period in history has in mind? The same one that Moses is writing about here. The people in the wilderness who grumbled and complained when things got hard. And yet, the author of Hebrews says to Christians who are secure eternally, who will be in the new heavens and the new earth, he says, live wisely and encourage each other to keep turning to God when life gets difficult and challenging. Reality always gets the last word. And since it's the creator's role to define reality, we might say God always gets the last word. As Christians, why not let him have, like Moses does here, the first word as well? And when we face challenges, always be turning to him, leaning into his unfailing love, his covenant faithfulness, the promises like he's made to us in Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare his only son on your behalf, how will he not also give you everything else that you need? He is such a loving and kind God. Whether you're a believer here or not, whether you're here today and you are a believer or not, we all must turn to him for the first word as Moses, the man of God, does in this psalm. My prayer for those of you who do not yet know Christ is that you would turn to him today and humbly bow and accept the story, the only real story, the true story that Moses has given us here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we do thank you that in your word we don't just read of the future where there will be no more sorrow or suffering and sin and sadness, but that you are clear in communicating to us about reality as we experience it. That's not the only reason we think your story in scripture is true, but it it is one reason, so thank you, Father. Thank you that you are from everlasting to everlasting. This week, this year, this decade, the rest of our lives when The reality of living in this fallen, broken world hits us. Would you hold us fast? Would you pull us to yourself and cause us, turn our heads, twist our necks, that we might always turn to you in times of trouble and lean on your unfailing love. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. There is none like you. And we love you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.